With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, welcome to our fashion history mystery mini-sode, where we answer your questions, our listeners. And today's question comes from Ellie Moscato, who wanted to know how clothing has historically been protected from sweat stains. And this is an excellent question. It is, and it leads me to get to talk about one of my all-time favorite garments, and that is the chemise undergarment. I know you've probably heard us say it on Dressed, and I will say it again here, that the chemise is by far one of the most important undergarments employed by men and women for centuries. Because prior to modern technologies that surround laundry, men and women had to hand wash all of their clothing. So, um, you know, this is pre-fast fashion world. So people could only really own a handful of pieces of clothing. You know, the average person, wealthy people had a lot more, of course. But so if you think of the wealthy people and the clothing they're wearing, like say 18th century brocade silks, April, or Mm -hmm. 15th century Italian velvets, I mean, you can't wash these things. So this cotton or linen chemise undergarment were incredibly essential in keeping those outer garments clean or cleaner because that undergarment could be easily washed. Right. And it was the layer that was worn directly against your skin. So it was separating uh, your outer garments from the body, basically. And if I remember correctly, for a little while, you had an Instagram feed. Oh, yes. That all had all to do with this chemise. <laughs> Right. It's called Find My Chemise. And that was actually really fun. I've not posted to it for quite some time, but perhaps I'll get back to it. So it's this Instagram that I created called Find My Chemise. And I posted images of art that really spanned hundreds and hundreds of years. And it becomes this fun game because if you look hard enough in these artworks, you'll almost always find the chemise peeking out at the cuff edge of a man's doublet or the neckline of a woman's gown. Artists depicted it because it was such a staple of men and women's clothing for centuries. And being that it was this layer intended to keep your outer garment from touching the skin, it was often visible. And I talked about this a bit on the American Duchess episode, that the chemise is one of the things I just always look for when watching a period film or TV show, because it absolutely would always have been worn and been visible. And not only the chemise um, was protecting kind of like the outer layers of the, you know, probably more expensive, finer textiles. Um, Also, too, if you look at a lot of bodices from the 18th or 19th century in terms of women's wear, they're also lined with linen or kind of like a buckram on the inside. Um, And and in some of the classes that Cass and I took in grad school, um, when we're looking at things and trying to ascertain if some of these garments were actually authentic from the time period or not, one of the things that we were actually trained to look for, especially in the 18th century, if you see a bodice that is not lined with like a linen or or something, a more humble fabric on the inside, then it might be fake. Or, Or maybe that lining had been removed. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point. And then you come into moving into the 18th, uh, moving out of the 18th century and into the 19th century, um, you see the invention of dress shields, which is pretty fascinating. So um, yeah, another step in protecting your outerwear from your natural 
body's um, sweat. So the first ad for dress shields actually appears in Harper's Bazaar in June of 1873. And that's only five years after the magazine first launched. And um, I also want to say that I actually still to this day employ dress shields in my garments um, because it's um, something that you can sew or snap in to your, you know, like your cashmere sweaters or something. Um, So it really is still a technology that's being used today. Yeah. And so and they're basically, um, we didn't really describe what they are, but they're basically like little pads that go into the armpit area of a garment, right? Did I describe that properly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and it, it may be that um, dress shields may have been one of several types of sleeve protectors that were being used in the 19th century. Because, Cash, you mentioned that the first ad for dress shields was in Harper's Bazaar in 1873. Um, But I also saw another ad for dress shields. Um, It was a few years later in 1877. But that ad mentions that their dress shields are more effective than other types of sleeve protectors. So it seems that in the past, there was kind of like this genre of of products that you could get um, for your sleeve area in terms of perspiration. Yeah, and which leads us to the next point, which you always think about historically, is um, what did people use to not only protect their garments from sweat, but what did they use to, you know, maybe mask odor or... Mm -hmm. um, what did they wear to prevent perspiration or help with perspiration? Um, I think something that's really interesting too, like if you think about weddings and why brides historically wore bouquets, I think one of the um, stories, uh, I have to do a little more research, is that why women use bouquets is because they needed that floral smell to help, you know, mask our natural body odors. Have you heard anything about that, no, April? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to think about, and I, I'd, I'd require a little more research. But So I think deodorant, as we think of it, as a cosmetic or beauty product, emerges in the late 19th century, and it's first uh, emerges as a powder, And the first mention we could find in a fashion magazine was in March of 1891 with an ad for Royal Perea body Mm -hmm. deodorant. And the tagline was, the absence of all odor is the sweetest perfume. (laughs) I love that. Um, (laughs) And and shortly thereafter, um, in like 1894, we start to see this hybrid of the two. Um, We see ads for deodorized Dress shields, which is fascinating. Evolution. Yeah. And and apparently there was this company um, called Amelin that was making, quote unquote, antiseptic dress shields. And they say, quote, our dress shields are medicated and they are an entirely new antiseptic and deodorant. They are perfectly odorless, non-irritant, absolutely harmless. The only efficient deodorant yet discovered possessing these invaluable qualities Emelin dress shields are made of pure rubber lined with a highly absorbent fabric, which absorbs all perspiration, preventing the staining of the dress and the lining being medicated with amylin. An odor of perspiration is destroyed. And Cass, this is hilarious. They came in sizes. Um, I'm not (laughs) sure what size my armpits are, but they came in sizes small, medium, extra medium, large, and extra large. And apparently you could you could get samples sent to you in the mail um, for anywhere between $10 and $15 today. What's an extra medium? I don't know. That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I wish 
wish you could still, you know, that would be the fantasy, right? To be able to still write in and order some of these things for 35 cents and have them magically appear at your doorstep. <laughs> I guess it's like the I, Amazon. Yeah. You know, things have really gone mainstream when you start to see luxury versions of everyday products. And so deodorant was advertised in Vogue in 1906 as being created by a Paris physician who attended to royalty and its new purveyor, Jean Carrington, had been given the recipe, which she was now revealing to American women for the first time. So for $1 or $28 today, she would send you four ounces of, quote, sweet, fresh deodorizer for the skin and wearing apparel, packaged in, quote, purple and gold box, carefully wrapped and privately addressed. And she encourages you to hurry and write because she can only supply a few customers. I like that it's privately addressed because you don't want anyone to know that you're wearing deodorant right? No, no, no. It's very private. Um, but basically, <laughs> around the same time, um, a whole slew of new deodorant-type products came onto the market. Um, there was one called Eversweet, which um, advertised in Vogue around the same time. But the strangest one that I came across was a deodorant cream, which is called Mum. And it was made by <laughs> Bristol Myers um, in the 1930s. And their ad, in addition to spreading this deodorant cream under your arm, their ads also encourage women to apply the cream to their sanitary napkins. Interesting. I'm going to go no on that. <laughs> Let's not do that, Bristol Myers. <laughs> Why would you want like cream on your sanitary napkin. No. I know. Well, it's a bit outside the scope of our podcast, I suppose, but I think a history of sanitary napkins would be incredibly interesting. The evolution of of that sort of product would be, is probably along the same lines of deodorant, I would think, kind of a product of the industrial revolution. But again, very interesting topic. Actually, some of my students have asked me about this um, in the past um, in class in terms of like, how did women deal with getting their periods historically? So maybe we'll get to that one day. Yeah, because it actually did affect what you wore. So maybe we will. Mm -hmm. Great idea. So roll-on deodorant appeared on the market in 1955. And the bottle and delivery method were supposedly inspired by a relatively new invention, and that was of the ballpoint pen. Uh-huh. So this new roll-on method was covered by both Vogue and Women's Wear Daily. Um, it had mixed reviews, but um, some people thought it was a little bizarre. Yeah, and, and, and these reviews were really, really funny. They were talking about like how certain markets, like in Ohio or like Arkansas or like all these different markets liked it or didn't like it. So it was like a, it was like actually kind of like a, a hot topic of discussion. And of course, that kind of leads us all the way to today because we still, you know, have roll-on deodorant products. I just put some on this morning. Yeah, and I just want to say that finding a good deodorant is something I struggle with still. I have found um, a lot of success with like locally made deodorants, such as this desert deodorant that I wear because it's comprised of natural ingredients and it doesn't have that aluminum. But I am constantly still looking for new deodorants. So mm-hmm. um, it's it's an uh, issue is um, time immoral, as we would say. Um, yeah. And sweat stains are still a huge problem. I think, like I said, I'm a huge fan of dress shields. I think, you, you know, you ruin so many of your shirts, essentially, um, by sweating and staining them. So dress shields are a great way to um, preserve your garments and use them to their fullest. And and I think you probably employ them not just in your own life, but also for work, right? 
As a costumer? Yeah, in costumes and film and TV, we use them a, a lot, actually. Um, in men's dress shirts, especially um, under, you know, suit jackets, it's important. Um, and then, of course, when we do a lot of period rental or period costumes, you want that dress shield in there for the same reason people used it historically to protect their outerwear. And I also wanted to talk, April, about this company, this really cool company called NYX. And it's oh, yeah, K-N-I-X. Yeah, yeah. I saw this last week on Instagram. Yeah, it's such a great company. So they believe it's time that all women live totally unapologetically free, free from judgment. And they so they have all these products that are designed to make you feel more comfortable in your own skin. So they have this really cool sweat-proof undershirt, but they also have leak-proof underwear. And my personal favorite is the thigh is the thigh-saving shorts. So no more chafing thighs this summer, ladies. <laughs> but just slip that on under your dress, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and also, too, I think it's important to point out that, of course, right here, we've been talking about, like, the history of, of, of perspiration and deodorant in the West, right? I'm mm-hmm. sure there are many other cultures around the world that have their own unique um, ways that ha- this this issue has been addressed. Um, but but that's just what we're covering today on our Fashion History Minisode, because it's not an entire episode. It's a minisode. Absolutely. And please share with us, of, as you guys all do so well. We love to hear from you. Yes. Tell us what works for you. Maybe you can give Cass some new re- deodorant recommendations. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, too, I think, Cass, I would like to talk about um, one of our recent fashion history mystery minisodes, which was on Amish fashion, or, or the, I guess the question posed was, are there Amish fashion designers? And it seems like, mea culpa, I needed a little more nuance in some of the things that I said in that episode. We heard um, from quite a few of you when I mentioned that I saw a group of Amish women on the plane back from Australia, that perhaps they were not Amish at all, but that they were likely Mennonite. Um, and so we did hear from from several of you, but I just wanted to read a little snippet of an email that we got from Jill Stemple, um, because I think that she kind of goes into this in a really cool way. She says, quote, there are dozens of smaller Anabaptist groups, and many of them wear distinctive head coverings. What you described is a piece of fabric on the head sounds like the style of covering worn by the River Brethren and beachy Amish groups. And old order Mennonites often only wear the white prayer cap without a bonnet outdoors. And she attached some photos explaining what she was talking about, which is great. So thank you, Jill. And then she goes on to say, she says, if you're really deep into Anabaptist groups, you can frequently tell pretty clearly what someone's theology is from their clothing. I, for example cover my head with purple hair dye, marking me as a liberal Mennonite Church USA member, which is a mainline denomination that generally doesn't retain the conservative dress and head coverings. I love that. Instead of wearing a head covering, she has purple hair. Fabulous. (laughs) And then um, another listener, Ruth uh, Tillman, wrote in to to us about the episode. She's a librarian and a quilter. She wrote us a very nice email regarding the differences between the Anabaptist, Mennonites, and Amish religions, as well as kindly pointing out some overgeneralizations we might have made. And um, Ruth is a Mennonite, and as an Anabaptist herself, she emphasized that Anabaptists practice non-resistance and pacifism. Um, citing not serving in armies as being a big source for their forced immigration historically to the U.S. Um, 
And she also wrote something really interesting about why a lot of communities make clothing without buttons. And that's because making buttonholes meant permanently um, putting holes in a garment that might prevent reuse. So there's really a, re a respect for the cloth that goes into their decision not to use buttonholes. She did say you got it 100% right on pre-made men's shirts and lingerie, though, which I thought was awesome. So thank you, guys. <laughs> yes, we, we try to knock it out of the park 100% for you guys all the time. But, you know, it's just a matter of life that sometimes we, we might not have that nuance. So thank you guys for writing yeah. to us and talking to us and explaining things in a little further detail to us. Yeah, these fashion history mysteries have really been a great way for April and I to explore and learn about a host of new topics. So thank you for inspiring us, teaching us, and learning with us each and every week. So April, any other fashion history news out there? Um, well, I would like to say congratulations to Mark Jacobs and Char De Francesco for getting married yesterday. Oh, congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah. So they had a little wedding here. Oh, not really little, but they had a wedding here in New York, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was last night, which would have been April 6th. So congratulations, gentlemen. What were they wearing? Are there any photos? Oh, yes. So uh, Mark is, they're both wearing suits. Um, Mark wore kind of like um, like a evergreen suit and he had a little white lily um, pinned um, to his suit lapel. And he, um, in some of the photos, is carrying a Chanel bag, a lady Chanel bag. Love it. Thank you very Fabulous. much. Fabulous. And Char is wearing actually a, a dinner jacket that is in green velvet, um, which is also kind of like an evergreen velvet, um, a white shirt, and a matching bow tie. So they were both in kind of like dark, deep green. Oh, fabulous. Absolutely wonderful. Looking yeah. that up immediately. Yes. Um, something else that happened, I think this week or this weekend, um, was the opening of Chicago History Museum's Silver Screen to Mainstream American Fashion in the 30s and 40s exhibition. Um, so that actually opens, oh, I'm sorry, that opens tomorrow. So if you're in the Chicago area, check that out. It's showcasing fashions from Paris, New York, Chicago, and Hollywood. It tracks how Hollywood's glamorous reach extended to all classes in the 30s through the 40s. So that's really exciting. Um, there's over 30 garments from designers such as Chanel, Vionnet, Valentina, and you guessed it, Adrian. Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> also, also, too, it's a little known fact, and I'm guessing that there's probably not really in any in this exhibition. I'm just guessing. I haven't seen it yet. But um, Bonnie Cashin also designed for Hollywood for a while, too, which is a lesser known part of her career. And we will do a Bonnie Cashin episode absolutely uh, sometime later this season. Yeah, a lot of designers have traveled to Hollywood. Chanel did, too, at some point, right? Yeah, she hated it. She hated it. Yeah. So um, that intersection of fashion and especially Hollywood in the 1930s was an incredibly uh, productive, um, inspiring, beautiful period. So um, if you head to that exhibition, please send us photos as you all so kindly do. I know a lot of people sent us exhibition photos from the Thierry Mugler exhibit, um, which we greatly appreciate. So thank you guys for sharing with us yeah. your fashion history ventures. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably does it for us this week, Cass. Yes, that does it for us. That's another episode of Fashion History Mystery. Thanks to you, our listeners, who we love. Yeah. 
And if you would like to write to us with a question, you could email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or you can also alternately direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. So please uh, tune in next week to our full-length episode on Tuesday. Until then, see you next week. Bye.